Hello and welcome to another Pedra Points of Discussion podcast. I am Jen Dawson, Pedra's Associate Director of Educational Programs, and I am back with a series about Spitz Nevi. To monitor or to excise? That is the question. Brought to you by the Skin Tumors and Reactions to Cancer Therapies, also known as Stark Pedra Focus Study Group. Make sure you've subscribed to our Pedra Pearls podcast channel on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts so you never miss an episode. And be sure to follow us on our social media channels, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, all at Pedra Research. If you want to learn more about Pedra's Stark-focused study group, as well as our other research areas, be sure and visit us at www.pedraresearch.org. Now, a couple of disclaimers before we get started. It's important to note the views and information expressed during this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance or the program presenters. The purpose of this podcast is to be thought-provoking and to stimulate new ideas, new collaborations, and novel research. Any reference to medical treatment or disease management is for this purpose only. It is not an endorsement by PEDRA or its program presenters and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Any decisions related to medical care should be made in consultation with a qualified healthcare provider. I am delighted to introduce your moderators for this program, Dr. Steve Humphrey and Dr. Valerie Carlberg. Dr. Humphrey is an Associate Professor of Dermatology and Pediatrics at the Medical College of Wisconsin and Children's Wisconsin. He also serves as the Associate Residency Program Director for the residents at MCW. Dr. Valerie Carlberg is an Associate Professor of Dermatology and Pediatrics at the Medical College of Wisconsin and Children's Wisconsin. She is also the Medical Director for the Vascular Anomalies Clinic at Children's Wisconsin. Before I turn it over to our program presenters, I would like to invite our presenters to state any disclosures they may have relevant to this discussion. Hi, I'm Steve Humphrey, and my disclosures are um, some grant and funding research uh, for my institution through Celgene, um, Insight, Pfizer. I've also received fees for Data Safety Monitoring Board for Novan, and have been uh, gotten on, or have had honoraria from El Sevier, um, Incorporated. I'm Dr. Valerie Carlberg, and I have no disclosures. I'm Dr. Kristen Berevi, and I have no disclosures. Uh, my name is uh, Padram Garami. I'm a professor of dermatology and pathology at Northwestern University. I have done some consulting work for Castle Biosciences, but it's none of it is relevant to um, the current uh, discussion. And now I would like to turn it over to Dr. Humphrey and Dr. Carlberg. Thanks, Jen. Uh, for our first episode, our expert guests are Dr. Kristen Berebi and Pedram Garami, um, and they're going to provide some background on Spitz Nevi, as well as some of the nomenclature around these lesions. But before I introduce our guests, I'd like to turn over to my work partner and dear friend, Dr. Valerie Carlberg. Uh, Val, could you provide some background on Spitz Nevi for our listeners? Thanks, Steve. I'd be delighted to. So in 1948, uh, Sophie Spitz first described a distinct melanocytic neoplasm arising in children with unique histologic features resembling melanoma, termed melanoma of childhood or juvenile melanoma at that time. Since then, our understanding of the biologic behavior of these lesions has evolved, recognizing that lesions exist on a spectrum from benign Spitz nevi to malignant Spitzoid melanomas. Between these extremes exist borderline lesions. 
which may have atypical clinical or histologic features, but, but exhibit a more favorable prognosis. These are most commonly called atypical Spitz tumors, AST, or atypical Spitz nevi, ASN. A variety of other terminology has been proposed, including Spitz nevus with atypical features, Spitz-like tumor of uncertain potential, melanocytic tumor of uncertain malignant potential, or MELTUM, but these are not universally embraced. For clarity in these podcasts, we will refer to Spitz nevi, atypical Spitz tumors, and Spitzoid melanoma. Regarding epidemiology, Spitzoid neoplasms are estimated to occur in 1 to 15 to 70,000 people per year and predominantly occur in people younger than 20 years of age. Atypical Spitz tumor and Spitzoid melanoma have been noted at any age, but most occur after age 10. Furthermore, in a study of 384 patients with Spitzoid neoplasms, melanoma was identified in 50% of adult cases. These data suggest that Spitzoid neoplasms behave differently in pediatric patients and adults, and management may be different in these patient populations. There are many diagnostic modalities utilized to diagnose spitzoid neoplasms. Clinical features can include size, color, secondary changes such as ulceration, and dermoscopic findings. While most experienced dermatopathologists can recognize the histologic features of benign spitz nevi, distinguishing between atypical spitz tumors and spitzoid melanoma can be more difficult. We will explore this more with our guest speakers in this podcast. Ancillary studies are being increasingly explored, including immunohistochemical staining, genetic expression patterns, comparative genomic hybridization, and fluorescence in situ hybridization. The utility of these studies in the pediatric patient population is actively being researched in a multi-institutional PEDRA study led by pediatric dermatologist Dr. Kristen Berigi. Currently, there are no evidence-based guidelines for the optimal management of spitzoid neoplasm. Among pediatric dermatologists, the decision to monitor or excise may be influenced by patient age and lesion characteristic. In a study of 175 pediatric dermatologists, nearly 50% elected to observe benign spitz nevi in prepubertal patients. For postpubertal patients or patients of any age with an atypical lesion, decisional biopsy was recommended. However, this study is from 2013, and practices may have shifted since then with more data and experience. We'll review the perspectives of our content experts and inquire about future directions based on their areas of research. Now that we have outlined the complexities of spitzoid neoplasms, we will introduce our expert guests to help us further explore and understand this topic. In our first episode, we will discuss the clinical, histologic, and ancillary tools available and how these may influence the classification of spitzoid neoplasms and when lesions can be monitored rather than excised. Val, thank you so much for running through all of that background information. So joining us today are Drs. Kristen Berebi and Pedram Garami. Uh, Dr. Berebi is an assistant professor and pediatric dermatologist at the University of Iowa. She has clinical and research interests in spitzoid neoplasms and, is, uh, as Dr. Carlberg had said, is currently leading a multi-institutional PEDRA study. Dr. Pedram Garami is a professor of dermatology, pathology, and pediatrics at Northwestern University. He's director of the Skin Cancer Institute of Northwestern Medicine and the director of the melanoma program in the Skin Cancer Institute and the Melanoma Clinic in the Department of Dermatology. His clinical interests and research interests are primarily focused on melanoma, atypical nevi, and borderline melanocytic tumors. He is a leader in melanocytic lesions and melanoma, both as a clinician and researcher. 
and he has been at the forefront of new techniques to better characterize melanocytic lesions and their potential behavior. So welcome, Drs. Brebby and Garami. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So this question I'm going to direct uh, to Dr. Brebby. What are the clinical features that can be seen with this with Spitz nevi that would make a physician consider this clinically versus a regular melanocytic nevus? Um, yeah, so Spitz nevi uh, in general tend to be more pink in color. That is probably the defining feature in some ways clinically of Spitz nevi is the pink color. Uh, this has to be taken with a grain of salt, though, because obviously um, there is quite a, a spectrum in in skin coloration. And there's also quite a wide variety in terms of mole patterns in in all of those skin varieties. Um, and so some people make very pink nevi at baseline. So that's a little bit tricky. You can't just define a spitz nevus based on the fact that it's pink <laughs> because some benign, you know, or other non-specific nevi are, are pink as well. Um, so in terms of the clinical features that make me think spitz nevus um, when I'm evaluating a patient and, and looking them over, uh, typically it's the pink color, in terms of a benign spitz nevus, they tend to be very well demarcated, symmetric, um, and under dermoscopy, I would say that they typically do not have a pigment pattern. Uh, they have kind of um, a va almost a vascular appearing pattern with kind of stippled vasculature, and um, and one of the things that can help to differentiate between kind of the more run of the mill, um, excuse me benign nevus, pigmented nevus versus spitz nevus is under dermoscopy, you can see kind of a usually a reticular or globular pigment pattern, even if it's faint. Um, something that you might see as clinically pink or pink brown. If you look under dermoscopy, if you see a pigment pattern, generally speaking, in spitz nevi, they tend not to be pigmented. They can be occasionally, but most of, more often than not, benign spitz nevi are just pink, symmetric, um, nice domed papules. Thank you for that. Are there some... Um spitz nevi that might be not pink that I know some kind of depends on potentially a person's skin tone, but do you, can, can you see darker ones as well? You can, you can, I would say in terms of the kind of the classic picture of spitz nevis, I, I generally think of them as, as pink, maybe light pink brown, but um, you can see pigmented spitz nevi as well. So you have to keep that in mind when you're evaluating any of these. And then are there more, are there types of spitz nevi that are going to be more concerning? And how might you differentiate those from your kind of more run-of-the-mill benign spitz nevi or benign appearing spitz nevi? Absolutely. So the features that I consider very concerning when evaluating a spitzoid neoplasm um, or something that I think might fall into that category. And again, well, the nomenclature can get a little bit confusing, but so the, the history questions that are most important to me are, is this rapidly growing or changing? And then in my clinical evaluation at the time of the visit and looking at the tissue and feeling the tissue and doing dermoscopy, seeing um, if it has areas of scabbing or if the tissue seems to be very friable and bleed easily. Those are definitely red flags. So sort of similar approach to you would have to like any melanocytic neoplasm lesion. So quite fast Absolutely. bleeding, um, you know, more rapid changes. Yes. 
So as Dr. Carlberg mentioned, we keep reading about all the different names, Spitz nevus, atypical Spitz nevus, Spitzoid tumors, Spitz melanoma, Spitzoid melanoma, Mel stumps. How do I keep these straight? You can't <laughs> in some ways, but you can. It's very challenging. I mean, the nomenclature, as Dr. Garami, I'm sure, is going to allude to in his pathology discussion, it's constantly changing for these. Um, and so it's very difficult to keep them straight. I I like the nomenclature of, of benign spitz nevus and then um, atypical spitz tumor and then spitzoid melanoma. But I always think of anything that has atypical in the name is probably not great. Melanoma, we universally know typically is not a good thing. Um, and then benign, I like that um, signal term for benign spitz nevus. So instead of just calling it a spitz nevus, which technically a nevus should is generally benign, but I like using that benign spitz nevus, but it is very challenging to keep the ever evolving nomenclature straight. Thank you. I think we'll have more to come on that as well. Um, and then the next couple of questions are directed to Dr. Garami. Um, so as a follow-up, it, it seems that various pathologists will use different terminology when it comes to um, naming these lesions. Could you give some comments on what's meant when we see terms like a pigmented spindle cell nevus of reed or spitzoid or epithelioid cell nevus, outfusion spitz tumor, others? Is there ways that are that help you sort of decide what to call things or are they more or less the same? So I'm going to uh, describe this in two different ways. One is the practical way that pathologists kind of use to approach this. And then I'll, I'll briefly mention something about um, the WHO recommendations of nomenclature, because there are some very specific recommendations from that group, which are very involved in, in um, describing and classifying spitz neoplasm. So practically speaking, pathologists use the word nevus to describe lesions where they feel quite confident that it's a completely benign neoplasm. And there really shouldn't be any level of uncertainty there. And if we call it like severely atypical or highly atypical uh, spitz nevus, that still means that we're quite confident that it's a benign nevus. But but maybe we think, you know, there's a lot of morphologic atypia or this lesion maybe has higher risk of potentially transforming or something of that nature. But when when the the last word in the diagnostic line is nevus, that implies that the pathologist is confident that the lesion uh, is benign at this time. When we use the term spitz tumor, that's utilized to indicate some level of ambiguity or uncertainty where, truthfully speaking, 99% of the time they're benign as well, but the pathologist is leaving some wiggle room there, acknowledging the fact that there's some uncertainty and that it, there's enough atypia um, to be concerned um, regarding the potential for some aggressive behavior. So we're leaving the door open. Clearly, all of those need to be completely excised. But the implication is typically that it's likely benign, but some uncertainty there. And then, of course, melanoma is, is a malignant neoplasm, which is quite straightforward. The other thing I'll touch upon is we used to, uh, now referring to the WHO terminology, we used to use the term spitzoid as kind of equivalent to the term spitz. 
then what happened, um, I think it was around somewhere on 212 to 215, where the Nature Communications paper came out, which very elegantly described the drivers of Spitz neoplasms as a completely distinct set of drivers than ordinary nevi and melanoma. So Spitz neoplasms, what we know now, are genomically defined as lesions that have a Spitz-associated fusion or an ATRAS mutation. And basically, the recommendations by the WHO are that lesions that are BRAF or NRAS mutated should be excluded from the class of Spitz. So now that a genomic definition has become available, we are more succinct and strict in our definition. And so when we say a Spitz melanoma, that really should refer to things that are the driver is ATRAS or the driver is a genomic fusion that's been associated with Spitz. And then that tumor has progressed to a point where we think it's malignant. On the other hand, Spitzoid now is utilized by the WHO to refer to lesions that are morphologically very spitzy appearing, but there's no verification by genomics. So if I say this is a spitzoid melanoma, it's a much broader term. It encompasses probably true spits, but it could also encompass a BRAF or NRAS mutated neoplasm that is definitely not a spitz, but maybe morphologically mimicking a spitz. So spits uh, by the WHO, spits melanoma is genomically verified, and spitzoid is a wastebasket term to include the genomically verified and just things that morphologically could mimic spits. Thank you very much for clarifying that. I know it's always hard to keep track of how to call, what to call these, and, and I think that was a really succinct definition on it. So Dr. Graham, as a follow-up question to that, if you did have something that you thought was potentially a Spitz melanoma, but if you haven't done any genomic testing on it, would you then just consider it to be Spitzoid at that point if you didn't have any genetics on it? Yeah, that's a great question. So if I think something is all the way to a Spitz melanoma, I would usually, you know, I usually do try to be, especially if I, if I really think it's malignant, I would try to be quite definitive in, in doing some genomics to, to verify that. Because I think the the reasoning to that being that what we're finding is that we have to evaluate fusion-related neoplasms very differently than we have to evaluate BRAF and NRAS-mutated neoplasms. And I'm going to give you a very specific example of this. One of the things that we've always commented on and has always been traditionally remarked upon as a marker of a very problematic spitz potentially is the presence of ulceration. Okay. So if a lesion is ulcerated, then we think of that as, you know, it's more worrisome. You know, obviously in, in true melanomas, ulceration is one of the most important prognostic factors. It's in the AJCC, right? Now, Alk fusion spits. If you look at the greatest experience, um, the papers published on series of Alk fusion spits, the vast, there, there's very rare report of, of such a case truly having 
distant metastasis and death of a patient. So what we know about ALK fusion spits is the vast majority do extremely well. Additionally, we see a lot of ulceration in ALK fusion spits. So if I see ulceration in a lesion, it's very, it has a very different meaning to me if I see it in a BRAF mutated neoplasm as, a, as opposed to if I see it in an ALK fusion, because I see it all the time in ALK fusions and those lesions do great. So I think um, when we want to evaluate lesions to get to the point of, of calling something a melanoma, if we're truly thinking that that's a, a real diagnostic possibility, I think that doing genomics would be important at that level. Now, I don't want that to be confused. Most spitz nevi, most spitz tumors don't need genomics because, you know, if, if you don't think it's melanoma and, and you can morphologically make the diagnosis, not needed. But if you're all the way to the point of potentially melanoma, it's going to impact the way that you evaluate the lesion based on the driver. Uh, and, and, the, the ulceration was just one of many such examples. So, so yes, I, I typically do genomics if I'm at that point of, of diagnosing a lesion as potentially malignant. Got it. Thank you very much for that. We'll come back to a little bit more um, genomics uh, in, in the future episodes. I'm going to come back to Dr. Brevi as we've now kind of clarified some of the, the nomenclature. Um, you know, one of the things we think about in pediatrics, especially is, you know, clinically monitoring them. So could you tell me more about your approach in clinic when you're seeing a patient who might have a spitzoid neoplasm and how you handle that? So in terms of how to proceed when someone comes into clinic with a spitzoid neoplasm or a spitz nevus, it, one thing you have to know going in is, is this something that has been biopsied before or not? Okay. Um, because that kind of determines how you might one might proceed and how the conversation will go with parents in pediatrics. Um, so in terms of one that has not been biopsied, specifically, I'm looking for those clinical features that we discussed before. Is this something that's rapidly growing or changing? Is it something that's friable? Is it bleeding? Um, is it causing the, the child pain or itch? You know, uh, those are important clinical features, which we may get into later when we discuss um, the current study that I'm doing with the, with PEDRA. But um, so those are important questions. And if the lesion appears symmetric, it is not rapidly growing or changing. It is not bleeding. It is not causing the child any pain or um, discomfort. Then often what I will do is I describe what a spitz nevus is to the parents because most are not necessarily familiar with that. They see something that is pink and growing on their child that doesn't look like a normal mole and they want it off. Um, and so talking it through saying that it's a less com common type of nevus, but they uh, are benign, uh, generally speaking, when behaving as they should, and that we can follow it clinically. And depending on the parent's comfort with that scenario, um, I may, if the parent feels very uncomfortable, I will offer a three to four month follow up, just to reassure that we have two time points, and also reassure them that anything bad would grow and change rapidly within a three month period of time. So but if the parents feel very comfortable with it, I would say, following in six months is totally reasonable, even to a year, depending, I usually like to have at least 
two time points. I don't like to just base it on one. So I do like that three month, three to four month follow up just to reassure myself. It's a trust, but verify technique that true, truly it is not changing. Okay. The caveat is when you have a spit soy neoplasm that comes in and has previously been biopsied by another dermatologist or a primary care physician, then the waters have been muddied. You don't really know what you're dealing with because the level of the biopsy, if you don't see the base of the lesion, you really cannot say with confidence that it is benign. Um, and so often I'll, you know, I don't know the level of the shave biopsy that was done by the outside dermatologist. All I see is a scar or a scab in the place where it was previously. So what I generally do is I recommend a second read on the pathology. I have wonderful, wonderful dermatopathologists at my institution that um, it's important to have wonderful dermatopathologists that you know and trust and that are used to reading pediatric uh, skin samples. And based on that, I usually have a discussion with the parents. If it comes back as a benign nevus uh, based on two different reads, then I talk with the parents and say, look, this is this is a benign thing. We know that this is benign. I feel confident that this is benign. We can watch this. We don't need to go back and take it out, even though it may have been positive on the margins, on the edges, on the bottom, on the sides. We can still watch it. But I'll say that I do give parents the option if they are going to lose sleep about it at night to just remove it and not have it have a possibility of growing back. Because uh, again, from a, a pathology perspective, as with any other type of nevus, uh, once you biopsy and it regrows, it can, again, muddy the waters in terms of what actually you see clinically and also histopathologically. It's a discussion whether it's been biopsied or not. If it's not been biopsied and I feel reassured, then I usually like to get those two time points to reassure not only myself, but the parents that it is not anything that we need to worry about. If it has been biopsied, even if it's benign, I usually have the discussion on whether or not to re-excise versus clinically monitor. Thank you very much for that. Um, and then I know we talked a lot about pink nevi. What about like darker potentially spitzoneoplasms, like I know that kind of old term, you know, pigmented spindle cell nevus of reed. Are there specific features with that that are also reassuring that you can, you know, clinically monitor? Absolutely. I love that that diagnosis, the spindle cell, pigmented spindle cell nevus of reed, because it has such a beautiful dermatoscopic finding. You see this black dot on a child's leg. Usually it's the leg, it can be other places, but leg, arm. And the parents are very, very worried. They think it's a melanoma. And you look at it and you say, oh, that does look different than all your other moles. And then you take out your dermatoscope and you look at it very closely and it has this beautiful star burst pattern under dermoscopy. And then you know, and you're reassured that that is nothing that needs to be removed. And so uh, in that circumstance, I think that the dermatoscopic findings can be extremely valuable with reassurance and just not removing something that um, doesn't need to be removed and can be clinically monitored. And then kind of as a follow-up, you know, there's some, you know, previous scary adult literature out there, um, you know, suggesting that possibly you know, significant melanoma rate among patients with biopsied spitzoid lesions. Um, I know from this study from Dr. Lalas and colleagues, uh, the cohort of patients they had was 12 and older, um, with the youngest melanoma being, uh, I think, a 20-year-old. 
Um, but what, what age do you start to worry? Um, and this could be for uh, Dr. Carl Berg and Dr. Garami too. At, at what age would you worry about a patient's spitzoid appearing lesion behaving more like an adult tumor? Um, from my perspective, you know, I really only see kids now. And so, uh, you know, obviously I'm trained in general dermatology, um, but my practice now is uh, strictly kids. Um, and so absolutely, I'd be interested, uh, Dr. Garami has to say, as well as Dr. Carlberg, in terms of, you know, things that I am concerned about. So in terms of the actual retrospective study that we're doing, uh, the youngest patient, it's generally speaking, uh, the diagnosis of melanoma was made at uh, an older age than atypical spitz tumors. So I definitely think that age seems to be a correlating factor with potential malignancy in these neoplasms. Um, it wasn't a huge variation in age. We're talking about like 10 years old versus eight years old, but it was powered and statistically significant. So, um, so yeah, I would be interested to hear what Dr. Garami and Dr. Carlberg have to say about that. I also am double boarded and exclusively see a pediatric patients now. So we're, we're in a similar setting there. I do approach lesions kind of in a pre-pubertal and post-pubertal fashion a little bit differently, just because I think um, so far the evidence, although the, you know, the studies um, are showing a generally favorable prognosis in all pediatric patients, um, when these lesions do tend to be a little bit more atypical or have a different prognosis, it tends to be in that post-pubertal population. And at some point, they're going to age out of our clinic and going to be monitored by adult dermatologists and potentially have lesions biopsied in adulthood. Um, and uh, as we know from the adult studies, in, in some of those, up to 50% of the spitzoid neoplasms that were biopsied were eventually diagnosed as melanomas. So we kind of have that discussion that while I think that this is a benign lesion in a post-pubertal patient, it may be difficult to monitor if you don't have consistency among dermatologists long-term, and uh, your diagnosis uh, could, could change over time. And so uh, we discussed clinically monitoring um, versus an excisional biopsy. I still have yet to diagnose a spitzoid melanoma in that patient population, but we do have a couple at our institution. Generally, for the younger patients, I, I tend to follow more of an approach that you already described, Kristen, um, which is for an otherwise um, typical benign spitz nevus that's in appearance. I clinically monitor those. Um, if it is rapidly growing, atypical in appearance, or in a location that will be more difficult to excise or result in a more disfiguring scar long-term, such as sometimes we'll see a spitz nevus on the face, for example, but if it's continuing to grow, orders of millimeters in those locations can result in moderately larger scars. Um, so then we will have those discussions about observation versus excision in those locations. So I think it's an interesting discussion because uh, my perspective will be different than their perspective seeing all kids. I see all spits, and it doesn't matter if they're kids or adults, but the, the referrals that come in are just um, spits lesions, and they could be from any age patient. And one of our observations is that spits are actually, as opposed to what a lot of prior epidemiologic studies show, we see spits not uncommonly at all in adult patients too. I'm seeing spits in the entire spectrum of age groups from newborns, young kids, all the way through even into elder 
age, uh, seniors. And I think that the reason that we probably associate spits with kids is that if you look at the proportion of pediatric neoplasms, which spits constitute, it's a significant proportion. I mean, a lot of the moles that are biopsied from little kids are spits. But as as people get older, you start acquiring a lot of dysplastic nevi and other acquired nevi, BRAF and NRAS mutated neoplasms of different sorts, and it starts significantly drowning out the proportion of lesions that are spits. And so even though the raw number is probably not as disparate as we've always thought it was, the relative proportion of spits is much less in adults because they have so many of other types of lesions, which we, we don't see in kids. So I think that when I see, you know, spits in, in younger prepubertal patients, generally, I think the, you know, the probability of those being true spits and, and, you know, being benign is, is obviously much higher. And then as we get older, into post-pubertal years, then you start to acquire more of other types of lesions that could be spitz-like lesions or spitzoid lesions. I think puberty is a, is a reasonable time to make that distinction of when your level of concern would be higher. But I would, I would make the caveat that in our experience, true spits, if you've genomically verified it, the vast majority are benign, whether they're young or older. Uh, you know, I, I just want to say thank you to Drs. Carlberg, Brebby, and Garami for their wonderful insight uh, into the nomenclature of spitzoid neoplasms. Uh, this has been so enlightening. Um, in episode two, we're going to talk a little bit more about excision and, and sort of dive into the genetics a little bit more as we continue on this path of trying to, how best we understand spitzoid neoplasms. So join us next time for episode two. This has been episode one in our three-part points of discussion series on spitz nevi. Thank you to our moderators, Dr. Humphrey and Dr. Val Carlberg. And thank you to our guests, Dr. Pedron Garami and Dr. Kristen Barebi. Join us for episode two, where the group discusses excision and genetics. Please make sure you subscribe to the Pedra Pearls podcast channel so you never miss an episode. You can listen on iTunes, Spotify, Google, and Pedra's website at www.pedraresearch.org. We'll see you in episode two. Thanks for listening.